The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. From Romans 11, verses 33 and 36. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has his first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Let's pray. Uh, Lift up your hearts. We lift them up into the Lord. And now let's pray. Our Father and our great God, we exult because you are almighty. You are God and there is none other. Who can counsel you? Who can propose a better plan? Who can understand the course of the cosmos like you? You are all sovereign and all powerful and are glorious. And yet, and yet you still gather your people together week after week that we may know the mind of the Lord, that we may take counsel together, that we may receive grace from your hand. What an honor that you would call us here. And so we glorify you now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And amen. Amen. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Proverbs 27.5. So that was our verse from a few weeks back, and I want to return to this proverb because there is so much here. And one of the applications from our last time was that you were to give your friends a friendship knife and request that they would love you so much that when they see you sin, whether it's gossip or self-bragging or that eye roll, that they would faithfully wound you. But my question is how do you respond when your friends are actually faithful and courageous enough to do what this proverb says? What do you do? How do you respond when they rebuke you openly? And I'll tell you how we naturally respond. We get offended. We get offended. You say, how could they do that? Why are they so mean and rude and judgy? We fight back and bring out our own knife. We get our feelings hurt. And here is my bold claim. Taking offense is sin. Here's why. When you get offended because someone calls you out on your sin... You fail to believe the gospel, that you are a sinner who is justified by the righteousness of Jesus. Think about one of the basic premises of the gospel, that you must confess that you are a sinner who sins. If you ever lived with yourself for five minutes, this should be no surprise. Right? If you already know that you are a sinner, then why do you get offended when someone tells you you are a sinner. In our wily pride, we reject the gospel. We pretend that we are not actually that bad. We try to play God by justifying ourselves. And then we get really huffy. We get offended when someone points out the obvious. But when you are wrapped head to foot in the righteousness of Jesus, there is no room for getting offended when someone points out your sin. 
a right understanding of your justification and your sanctification gives you the humble boldness to respond, thank you. Someone corrects you of your sin. You say, thank you. Yes, I am a sinner, and you know what? It's so much worse than you know or even that I know. But praise God that Jesus forgives me and cleanses me of all my unrighteousness, and he's still working on me. Christian, the good news is that you must believe that Jesus Christ has taken all of your offense when he died on the cross. And because Jesus died for you, he took on all your offense, that means that you cannot get offended. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Father, we confess that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. You are the only standard of righteousness, and we have fallen far short of your glory. We are miserable sinners who have offended against a holy God. And yet we too often throw all of this out. We get offended if a friend or parent or spouse dares to rebuke our sin. Instead of humility or gratitude, we become brittle or excuse or hurt. This reveals that we care more for our own ego and the appearance of our righteousness than your glory and your righteousness in our life. Father, we ask that you would give us the blessing of friends who love us so much to faithfully wound us. And may we be those friends to others. We know that if we regard sin in our own hearts and in our own lives, this prayer will be ineffectual. And so we confess our individual sins to you now and Selah. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. And amen. amen. Please rise for the assurance of the Father's forgiveness. From Proverbs 28, 13. He who covers his sin will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Christian, this is a sweet promise. This is a powerful promise. That if you have confessed your sins, and if you have forsaken them, then as a minister of the gospel, it is my pleasure to declare to you that your sins are forgiven through Christ. And thanks be to God. The sermon text is taken from Psalm 29. These are the words of God. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf. Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. 
The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everyone says glory. The Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. Our God and Father, we've gathered here this morning as a result of your voice. You have called us from our families, from our labors, from the darkness. You've called us here. You've thundered, and so we've gathered. And so, Father, we ask that you would continue to speak now. Open your word to us, pour out your spirit upon us. And so change us, shake us, make us new, and equip us for every good work. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The Christian faith, Christian belief, and the existence of the Christian church are the results of the word of God. Why, why do people believe? Why does the church exist? The short and simple answer to that is because God spoke. Because God's voice thundered. That's why everything exists in the world. God spoke it into existence. It exists because he told it to. Everything is existing currently because it's obeying the voice of the Lord. But our faith and the existence of the church, the reason why there are countless millions of people gathered together on this day all over the globe worshiping Jesus, the reason for this is the word of God. It's the gospel of God it's the voice of the Lord. The voice of God thunders in creation and in the gospel. And then, as we see in this psalm, we echo that thunder. We thunder with his glory and with his grace. And so, I just want to walk through this psalm with you this morning, Psalm 29. If you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along in your Bibles um, and, and that's really what I want to drive at, is just the idea that what we're doing here this morning, what the church is, and why we confess Jesus, this psalm proclaims to us is fundamentally a result of God's word. Because God's word has thundered, we can't help but respond. That's what this psalm is about. Psalm 29 is broken up into three really uh, clean parts, three sections. And so you see this in verses uh, one and two. You have this opening uh, triple command to give glory to the Lord. Then you have that major middle section, verses three to nine, uh, which have that, that refrain of the voice of the Lord and this a picture of this enormous thunderstorm, a hurricane, an electrical storm. And then finally, verses 10 and 11, this concluding 
um, thought, this concluding summary of God's power and strength. And because he's the Lord of the storm, he's also the Lord of all peace. So let's walk through these three sections uh, together. First, David issues the command to give glory to the Lord. The command give comes three times. First, to the mighty ones, O you mighty ones, at the beginning of verse 1, literally um, the word there in the Hebrew is the same word that sometimes is translated gods. O you gods. Um, this is perhaps even reaching up to angelic beings, uh, spiritual powers, um, but probably also including kings and presidents, um, the people who are powerful in the earth. Those are, that's why this translation, mighty ones, is perfectly reasonable and good, but he's, he's calling out to the, to the powerful. Then the command includes strength, give unto the Lord glory and strength, and finally the command is given with a reason, because it is due to his name. You owe him worship. You owe him worship, the psalmist concludes this first section. Then the psalmist summarizes the command he's giving, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. So you have this threefold call to worship. You all need to worship God. You need to give him glory and strength. Even you who think you've got it together, even you who think you are powerful, who are wealthy, who people look up to, you need to give glory to God. Everyone needs to give glory to God. You owe him glory. His name deserves glory. And so, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Notice just there that the, the command issues in particular direction. You give glory and you worship God. How? Not just however you think. Not just whatever comes to you but specifically in the beauty of holiness. The second part of the psalm ex, uh, explains these elements of might and strength and beauty and glory, all centering on the voice of the Lord as this fierce thunderstorm, this enormous thunderstorm. The, the word voice that's repeated throughout here is actually used a number of times in the Old Testament in the, the Hebrew, it's actually used a number of times for the word thunder. So this is a, a common association. Um, it goes together. Um, for example, in the seventh plague with the hail in Exodus 9, it says that there was hail and thunderings. And literally, the, the word there is voices. There were great voices uh, thunders with the hail. And then later when Israel was gathered at the base of Sinai, there were voices or thunderings. You see this in Exodus 19 uh, verse 16. Remember Israel's gathered around the mountain and there's this enormous thunderstorm as God's presence descends on the mountain and, and Israel says, you know, is gathered around and says, never mind Moses, you go talk to him. Right? We'll stay back here. You go talk to God for us. This is scary, this enormous thunderstorm. I was vacationing a few weeks ago with my family in Leavenworth, Washington, and I, in the middle of the night, woke up, and the thought I had was, 
I think there was a bright light, and then it went boom. <laughs> there was a bright light. <laughs> it was you know, 3 a.m., and, and, and maybe you've experienced that before, but I, there was a, apparently a huge flash of light, lightning outside the window, and I was woke, woke, and then there was just a couple of seconds, and then it was big. It was enormous. The, the psalmist begins by introducing this thunderstorm over the waters. His glory thunders. His voice is powerful. His voice is full of beauty or majesty, verses 3 and 4. That, that word for majesty at the end of verse 4, it's the same word for beauty. So when we're instructed to worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness and we're to give him glory and strength and the glory due to his name, the psalmist is then beginning to say, so this is the kind of thing I'm talking about. I'm talking about uh, an enormous thunderstorm over the ocean. I'm, I'm talking about the loudest thunder you've ever heard. That's majesty. That's beauty. That's the kind of beauty I'm talking about. That's the kind of glory he's talking about. God's voice splits cedars in half, says verse 5. Splinters the cedars of Lebanon. You know, we have the giant sequoias, or maybe you've been down to the redwood uh, forest in Northern California. Maybe, you know, you've seen pictures of the cars driving through the middle of a tree. These trees that have been here for centuries. The, the cedars of Lebanon were kind of like their redwood forest in the Middle East. That's where you went and got the big trees to build the temple with. And David says, God splits them. He brings them down. They splinter into pieces when his voice thunders. God's voice also shoots out lightning on the earth. Verse 7, the voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. There's your lightning. And God makes the earth quake and shake, causing it to leap like young oxen. Verse 6. He's talking about an earthquake. He's talking about the way the ground jumps and shakes when God's voice thunders. Maybe think of a, the, the effect on the land uh, during a a volcanic eruption. The whole area shakes. It rips the roots of trees out from, their, from, the, from where they've been anchored in the ground. So think of earthquake. Think of volcanoes. And they just leap like wild young oxen. He shakes the wilderness his thunder's not limited to Lebanon. It even stretches over to Kadesh, verse 8. He can shake any land he wants. God's storm even makes the wild animals give birth. I, I, I'm, there may be other ways to take this, and, and some people may just believe that, that the word just saying here, you know, when God speaks, animals give birth, which, of course, that's true. God's sovereign over all of that. I think the, in, the intimation here is these animals are giving birth in panic. 
the whole world is shaking around them and suddenly they're miscarrying or they're giving birth prematurely. It's terrifying them. His voice is like a pressure washer that completely strips the forest bare. Maybe you've seen the aftermath of a hurricane or a tornado. You've seen the, the, the path of destruction, the trees just completely stripped, the forest completely laid bare by the pressure washer of the storm. This is like what God did when he separated the waves of the Red Sea in Exodus 15. And then finally, in what might feel like something of a lurch, the psalmist describes the voice or the storm of the Lord in the temple where everyone says, glory. And you might think, well, wait a second, that, now you're going to church? You know, like you, you got, you know, you got this National Geographic scene going. You know, the, the storm chaser thing going, all of it is going, and, and, and this, this hurricane, tsunami, electrical storm, tornado thing, and then he says, and in church, they're yelling, glory. Really? But even historically, this actually fits. It makes sense. When the tabernacle and the temple were dedicated by Moses and then Solomon, the Bible actually says that when they were dedicated, they were filled with glory that made them unapproachable. So when they began offering the sacrifices at the tabernacle, and then later on, hundreds of years later in the temple, when they dedicated it to the Lord and, and began offering those sacrifices, it says that the, the Spirit of the Lord fell on those places, and the people that were there offering sacrifices had to get out. They had to run. It became unapproachable. So even just historically, this is not a lurch at all. When God's presence shows up, it shows up like a storm. So on the one hand, this is what God's people do in response to the glory of God and his mighty word. So on the one hand, you see God's majesty in creation. You see God's majesty in the storm, in the hurricane, in, in, the, in the lightning striking. And if, and if you're thinking at all, if you're thinking at all, if you're humble at all, you say, I am so small, I am so powerless, and you cry out to God. And you see the beauty of it, and you say, Someone runs this place. Someone controls all this. And you worship him. You cry glory. So on the one hand, this is what God's people do in response to the glory of God and his mighty word and his majesty. But on the other hand, part of what this psalm is getting at is that the worship of God's people is as much caused by the voice of the Lord as the rest of the storm. You see, God speaks and the mountains explode. God speaks and the earth shakes. God speaks and lightning flashes and thunder wakes you up at three in the morning. God speaks and God's people shout. It's not just a response. It's part of the storm. We 
are part of the storm. That's the point of the psalm. The psalmist finishes his call to worship remembering that God was the one who ruled over the flood, verse 10. The flood, remember, was the greatest storm in human history, completely covering the earth. He ruled over that storm, and so he sits enthroned forever. He's the one who gives strength to his people, right? He's just listed all the strongest things there are. It doesn't get stronger than that. So if you want strength, you need to know the Lord of the storm. He's the one who gives strength to his people, verse 11. And therefore, as the Lord of the storm, he's the only one who can give anyone peace. The Lord will bless his people with peace. So the center of this psalm is the power of the word of God, the voice of the Lord. Kids, you should count for me how many times he uses the phrase, the voice of the Lord. Count them. Now after church, come find me and I want you to tell me how many times I've got chocolate in my office. How many times? That's the, that's, that's, the, that's the center of this psalm. You say, what's this about? It's about the voice of the Lord. It's about the word of God. And, of course, that's not, uh, not shouldn't be surprising because of the centrality of the word of God in all of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he did it by speaking, right? He said, let there be light. And there was light. And, and, and the Bible also says that God upholds all things by the word of his power, Hebrews 1.3. And then in that same place in Hebrews it says, and that word is the express image of God, the eternal image of God. Christ is the word of God. And so in John 1, that famous opening, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And that word is the light of men. And that word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Of course it's full of glory. Because the voice of the Lord is full of glory. And now it's been sort of centralized in a man born of Mary. His word thundered at Sinai, but Hebrews says that now in the new covenant, now that Jesus has come, his word now thunders directly from heaven in order to, to shake all things, Hebrews 12, so that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. He's writing to, to people who are thinking, well, Maybe the glory of the old covenant was more, right? Remember when the spirit fell on the tabernacle and the temple and the priests couldn't offer it? I mean, that's kind of that's cool. Maybe we should stay there. 
And he says, no, you don't get it. It's bigger now. The storm's only bigger. It's only big. It's, now he shook, he shook Canaan. He shook a little area around Mount Sinai. But now he's in heaven and he's thundering from heaven and he's shaking everything, Hebrews 12 says. Why is he shaking everything? And what does it mean that the word of the Lord, the voice of the Lord that does all this has become flesh? What this indicates is the fact that God's storm is not merely destructive. The storm of God is not just breaking stuff. It's not just destructive, but it's also wonderfully creative. We we should know this from Genesis 1, when the voice of the Lord thunders light, comes light. And it separates light from the darkness, and he creates earth and sea and heaven and stars and fish. So the voice of the Lord that thunders is this glorious, creative force. It's only in a world of sin and darkness where we build things and plant things that need to be destroyed, that need to be broken down, that his voice comes in order to tear those things away. Why? Not just to destroy, but in order to remake, in order to create, in order to save, in order to heal. And so you see this, of course, centered in the life of Jesus himself, who comes as the Lord of the storm, who commands the wind and the waves, and they obey him, who commands the sick to rise, who commands the blind to see, who raises the dead. who also turns over tables, who also mocks hypocrites and proclaims judgment on the rebels. The center of this glory, the center of the glory of the voice of the Lord was the cross itself. There, Jesus, the only perfect man, the only righteous man, He was betrayed. He was handed over to lawless men. They mocked him. They spat on him. They beat him. They jeered at him. And then they hung him up on a Roman cross to die, thinking, ha, we've got him. We've got God now. Come down if you can. They mocked him. But little did they know that even as they did that, the justice of God was being completely satisfied. The word of the Lord was being fulfilled. The promise that God himself would come. He would come in flesh and he would come and take away our sin. He would come and take all the brokenness of this world away. That his word would come. And fulfill all justice and save this God-forsaken world. And so this is what you see in the cross itself. You think, why why does the death of this guy, why is the death of that guy 2,000 years ago, some Jewish guy dying 2,000 years ago, what does that have to do with me? Well, he came 
as the only perfect man, the only righteous man, the head of a new human race. And there he was crucified, the Lord of glory was crucified for sinners. Why? Because you can't bear the weight of that justice. Right? God begins telling the truth. The voice of the Lord comes at you. And what does the voice of the Lord have to say about you and what you've thought and what you've looked at and what you've said and what you've done and who have you hurt and whom you've let down? The voice of the Lord comes and it reads, it reads the sentence. It reads the verdict. It reads all your crimes, all your sins. That's what the voice of the Lord does. Think about this in terms of a storm. It's like that's the thunder. That's, that's the flash. Right? That's the, that's the flash. You see the flash. You wake up, and the flash says, you're guilty. Isn't it nice not having any light in a messy room? Not too bad in here. Keep the shadows low. Can't see the dust, can't see the grime. Someone walks in, turns the light on. Hey now, hey now. Let's not be so harsh. Let's keep the lights low. Right? God in his justice comes and flips the lights on and says, I can see it all. We just sang about it in Psalm 139. The darkness, the night is just like daytime to him. What do you think you're hiding? You can't hide anything from him. He knows it all. There's the flash. And if God's gracious to you, you wake up. And you see it all for what it is. And the cross is God's gracious offer that the thunder of God's justice fall on Jesus instead of you. Who does the storm fall on? And so it grew dark there was a great darkness over the earth in the middle of the day when Jesus died. And Jesus offers that to every one of you. Right? You got darkness? Let it fall on him. Place your trust in him. Call on the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. This is the center of God's thunder and lightning. This is the center of God's storm where the justice of God was completely satisfied and the mercy of God was freely offered. And so it has pleased God for many centuries now for his word to go forth in the mouths of frail, finite men preaching this good news, this gospel, proclaiming the justice and mercy of the cross that splits the cedar hearts of rebellious men and strips their arguments bare. You have no argument. You have no good excuses. You sinned. You liked it. You rebelled. You wanted to. And your only hope is Jesus. This is God's two-edged sword going out of the mouth of Jesus and then through the mouths of his servants conquering sinners and making them new. And when that storm falls, people shout glory. Because it's all mercy. It's all grace. You didn't deserve it. 
You can't do anything to make yourself deserve it. God just gives it. It's free. His son in your place. His love for you forever. This is the center of it all. And if you don't get this, the rest of what I'm going to say, it, it could be confusing or it could be, you could get excited about this in the wrong kind of way. But this is the center of it all. But, but because of the power of God's word, the way we respond to them, we, we want our worship and our shouts of glory, our lives that proclaim praise to God for his salvation, we want it to be patterned after God's word. You say, yeah, that's me. I'm, that's me. I've been saved. I've been rescued. I've been set free. The storm, it hit Jesus instead of me, and now I'm new. His voice has made me new. Now what do I do? What, what does that mean? Why, why the church? What are we doing here? Well, it's because we love the word. We love the voice of the Lord. Because the voice of the Lord is what broke our hearts. The voice of the Lord is what stripped all our arguments bare. The voice of the Lord is who saved us. And so we want to run back to the word. We want to run back to the voice. We want more of the voice. More of the thunder that shakes our sins off, that shakes us awake to see clearly, and that makes us new. And so this is why when we gather for worship, we want to gather for worship in obedience to the word. We don't just gather and make it up as we go along. We don't just show up and be like, well, we'll just see what happens. No, no, we love the word. We love the voice, the voice that called us, the voice that shook us, the voice that gave us new life. And so we love the word, and, and so we say, well, what does the word say to do? And then you start reading in the Bible, and it says, well, when you gather together, Paul says, let everything be done decently and in order. The word in the New Testament for order is taxis, which was used in ancient uh, literature to describe the military formations in the ancient world. Paul says when you gather together, think of it like an army. You're an army, so there should be order to it. When we thunder, we thunder like an army in formation. This is why we're committed to a, a, what looks very formal in terms of worship. You say, why is it so formal? Because we're an army. The New Testament requires our worship to be a spiritual sacrifice of praise. And if you even think about that, in the Old Testament, God didn't say, just kill a bunch of animals and, you know, that'll do. I mean, there's whole books of the Old Testament about how to offer sacrifices. And you're like, but that's the Old Testament. Right? But then in the New Testament, it says you offer spiritual sacrifices of praise, the fruit of your lips. You know, we're not offering animals anymore. Jesus is the final bloody sacrifice. But the fact that God cared so much about how the sacrifices were offered means that we need to listen carefully and learn from those patterns as we come and offer our spiritual sacrifices 
of praise. And so we find that the Old Testament sacrifices were ordered carefully. There was sin offerings and ascension offerings and peace offerings. And when they all came together and they were offered together, they were offered always in a particular order. So we call our worship covenant renewal worship, mimicking that. We confess our sins. We are forgiven. That's our sin offering. We stand up and we praise God and we hear his word preached and read. That's our ascension offering as we, as we lift our hearts up to the Lord. And then we sit down as we are in a couple of minutes to feast with God in our peace offering, which is the only sacrifice in which the worshiper ate with God. And through it all, Paul is concerned principally that the word be clear. That they understand what God is saying. That his voice thunder with grace and truth. The same word is also used to describe the order of the leadership. Elders and deacons were established in the early church so that all things might be done in order. And so part of the way that we ensure that our church and our worship thunders with God's voice is that we want, it, we want, our, our, we want our church to be organized by God's word. And so there are elders and there are deacons and, and those leaders are to be qualified by the, order, the orderliness in their homes. This is why we care about what kind of men we make elders and deacons. The Bible says that if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children who are not accused of dissipation or insubordination, that man may be qualified to be an elder or one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? 1 Timothy 3, 4, and 5. And closely related to that are the commands to God's people that they honor and obey their elders. CCD, Ty brings the word to you most Sundays. And I want to urge you to honor him. He's really fun. And he's really funny. that he brings you the word of God. Which means you need to think highly of him. Honor him. He brings you the word of God. Finally, there's no storm of God's glory where there's no discipline. There's lots we could say here, but just Really briefly, I want to remind you that church discipline begins in every believer's heart by the conviction of the Spirit. I say church discipline, and everybody says, so who got kicked out? Right? I say church discipline, you're like, where's the hearing? Where's the scandal? You know, if you understand this biblically, we want to guard the word of the Lord. We want to guard the glory of the storm. And that begins in your heart. That's where the storm is, Right? The Spirit is in your heart. The glory of the Lord is in your heart. That's why you cry, glory. And the Spirit is there convicting you of sin, right there. That's where the most important church discipline happens every day of the week. It's when the Spirit convicts you of sin, and you see the truth, and you say, you're right, it's sin, and you cry out for mercy, and you're forgiven. 
The vast, vast majority of church discipline happens like that. The Spirit convicting you, and you repent. You lay your arms down. You say, you're right, I'm going to stop doing that, and you walk away. You surrender. Don't grieve the Spirit. Don't push away the Spirit. Don't shove the Spirit in the closet. You know that's not going to work out. Of course, church discipline also includes what Ty was talking about this morning in the call to worship. It includes brother to brother and sister to sister, right? In your families and in your houses with your roommates where you're willing to love one another enough to say, brother, what are you looking at? What are you doing? Why are you in that relationship? What are you doing here? Why are you talking to your mother that way? Why are you being such a slob? Are you staying in the word? That's church discipline too. And of course, sometimes... Sometimes sin also has to be uh, taken up more formally by the church. And when it does, it's hard, it's challenging, and it's difficult. But what you need to remember is we do it in obedience to the word of God. Jesus said to do it. If someone won't repent of their sins, then it needs to be taken ultimately to the church. We need to follow principles of justice and order. It's not just we don't like that guy, so they're out. But we do that in obedience to the word. Why? Because we love the beauty of holiness. We love the beauty of the storm. The storm that set us free. The storm that took our sins away. We love that. In the Exodus narrative, some of you have heard me say this before, but I just it's one of those things that I think I'll probably keep saying until the end of my life. In the Exodus narrative, the word armies, you know the story of the Exodus with you know, Israel take, getting, going out of I- I- Egypt and, and Pharaoh coming after him and the Red Sea and all the rest of it. When I was studying this a few years ago, the word armies is only used five times in the Hebrew. And the really crazy, striking thing is, as I looked at it is that it is never applied to the Egyptians. Every single time the word armies is used in the Exodus narrative, it always applies to Israel. (laughs) Think about that. Israel, complaining, fussing, whining, brickmakers. What kind of army is that? Pharaoh's got the chariots. Pharaoh's got the horses. Pharaoh's got the soldiers. But never once does the does the author dignify them with the name armies? Only Israel is God's armies. You think, but what did they do? They put blood over their doors. They ate a lamb. And then they plundered their enemies and walked out in victory. How was that possible? Because God fought for them and because God takes obedience to his word and he makes it thunder. So this is God's way. He sees you as his armies, his hosts. And we fight by shouting glory. We fight by confessing our sins and forgiving one another. We fight by feasting on his word in the Bible and hearing it on the Lord's Day and sitting at his table. We fight by baptism. We fight by building houses and businesses, by working hard at whatever God's given you to do, feasting and rejoicing in his glorious grace. 
because by the grace and power of his word, he is making us and remaking us into the beautiful storm of his holiness. Father, we praise you and we thank you for the storm of your glory. We thank you that the storm of your glory fell at the cross, that you took the penalty for our sins, that Jesus stood in our place, and that that glory has now been spilling out into this world for 2,000 years. Father, we ask for that glory to be explosive here in our midst, downtown, and on campus, and in our town. We pray that our neighbors would know the glory of Jesus, and that they would call out glory with us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So from our sermon, we realize that our God is the storm God, and he is capable of throwing a great storm. And I like to consider the storm that's in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit descends upon the disciples at Pentecost. And if, Acts, uh, and if Psalm 29 gives direction of the kind of storm God is capable of creating, then perhaps our kid storybook images of the leaves swirling around on the wind and the cute candle flames hovering over the apostles, those images are just too puny. If Pentecost was anything like Psalm 29, we should think hurricane and thunder and fiery electrical storm all trying to be contained in one house. I mean, what is really going to draw a multitude of storm chasers from all over Jerusalem? It is the storm of the Holy Spirit. And this is the fulfillment of what Jesus promises his disciples. He told them, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus gives his disciples the word of thunder. And then guess what they do? They go out and thunder the word once they have received the Holy Spirit. Peter preaches, and the voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord shatters the cedar hearts of men who cry out, What must we do to be saved? The Spirit is a storm. Powerful, terrible, glorious. And the Spirit is a storm that gives peace. Repent and let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. On the same day that the Spirit stormed, 3,000 souls found peace through the waters of baptism. And these new disciples received the Holy Spirit. And guess what? Then they too became a storm of holiness who thundered the word. And we are working on that to the ends of the earth. And that is why we need the voice of the Lord right here. We need the voice of the Lord in our homes, in our marriages, downtown Moscow. We need the voice of the Lord thundering on the University of Idaho campus. Why? So that way we can cry glory. Christian, know that you have received this same power from the storm God. 
this is true because the Lord Jesus sits as king forever. This is true because Jesus sits as king at this table. Here, the Lord will give strength to his people. Here, the Lord will bless his people with peace. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are the God of the storm. We thank you that you have poured out your furious storm on Jesus. And because of that, in faith, we can come to you and now receive your peace. We pray that this meal would strengthen us, that we might, too, thunder the word for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name, and amen. So, question for you. Uh, who loves a good storm? Man, I love it. It's exciting when those big brooding clouds are rolling in on the Palouse. The uh, lightning is cracking. It's exciting. Uh, but have you ever been to a place where you kind of go from that excitement to getting scared, like if you are actually out in the middle of that storm, right, and you come to it's like, okay, that's good, that's, the fun's over, but we have to realize that as much as you love a storm, God loves it all the more, and sometimes there is that storm in your marriage, in your finances, in your work, and you say, okay, that's, that's good, that's good, God. What is God doing? He is bringing you to the place that he can display his glory. So what do you do when you are in the storm of your life? The answer is not to turn from God's storm, but rather to turn to him. And the charge is to remember this, that in that hurricane, in that tsunami, right at the middle, that very center of that storm is peace. Turn to Christ in the middle of the storm, and there you will find peace. Now receive with believing hearts the benedictions from the Lord. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.